This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Paola Maricelli what's her biggest challenge when designing for Facebook, and here's what she said. At Facebook, we're designing products that millions of people use all around the world. I was born and raised in Peru. I grew up using a typewriter to write my school essays. But even then, I cannot generalize my experience to that of people in other emerging markets, for example. It's imperative to build empathy for the people and the context in which they live their lives, that you constantly check yourself and your assumptions. The payout being incredible, of course, as you build experiences that truly make an impact around the world. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Little Bird Innovation is looking for a design associate for their Memphis office. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 12 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. The holidays are in full swing and no other email service provider is better when it comes to functionality as well as customer service. Speaking of customer service, if you're following us on Instagram, just search for Revision Path, you'll see the really nice holiday package that MailChimp sent us. Really cool stuff. Anyway, sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're up now to 40 patrons for a new record total of $268 per month. Again, a, a huge thanks to everyone that has pledged your support and your appreciation for the show, not just every month, but I mean, throughout 2016, it has really helped keep Revision Path going on a smooth and steady course. So thank you so much. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. So just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. So this is our first two-part interview, and I'm talking with Kai Jacobs, a product and systems designer in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Kai Jacobs. Uh, I'm a product and systems designer. Uh, what I do is, well, what I've been doing the past few years is uh, feels a little bit like a design hitman. <laughs> Companies are reaching out to me and saying, hey, you know, we have a product. It's not doing what we want it to do. Can you come in, take a look at it, make it better, help us to make that thing a success? So I've been uh, looking at digital products, figuring out where they're weak. Uh, offering solutions and sometimes even implementing those solutions uh, on my own. Uh, but that's been the focus of my, my design work for the past uh, few years. So what's sort of a typical day like for you? Where are you currently at? I live in Amsterdam 
right now. That's uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands. <laughs> and uh, well, I'm out here with my wife and uh, my five-year-old son. So my typical day starts at about six when my alarm goes off and says, hey, you should wake up and uh, do some of those routines you should be doing every day. But then my day skips to about 7, which is when I actually wake up and get out of bed. <laughs> uh, and yeah, then, then the, uh, the hustle starts where I'm trying to wake up my kid. I'm trying to, you know, coordinate my movements around my partner and trying to make food, make lunch, get ready, get dressed, get washed, get out the door and, uh, and be on time. But uh, I'm pretty lucky here in Amsterdam as far as where I am because uh, the school for my son is about a, yeah, a three-minute bike ride. My job's about a 20-minute bike ride, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty easy to start the day. Uh, when I get into the office, I do a stand-up with my team. That's pretty typical in, uh, in uh, tech spaces where design is a part of the, the routine. Uh, and we catch up from yeah, yesterday, talk about what we're planning to do for the day. Uh, and these days, my, I'm in the phase of a project where I'm taking over uh, previous design work and trying to synthesize the good parts of that stuff and evolve, uh, evolve the project into something better than it was. And so what about your work day? Yeah, well, I guess it depends. Uh, so the work day, I work in, I work between two offices, one in Amsterdam and one in Rotterdam, which is a city about an hour to the south of Amsterdam. So Depending on the day of the week, actually, I'm either in Amsterdam or Rotterdam. Um, but I, from throughout the day, I'm going from my my screen to the whiteboard to pieces of paper where I'm sketching out ideas, trying to work out concepts, spending a lot of time talking with people as well. That's that's sort of part of the the UX side of the product design I'm doing. Uh, talking to customers, talking to people inside the company. I'm working with a uh, uh, job marketing recruitment platform, if that makes any sense. Um, it's a new area for me, but one that's kind of uh, booming right now, I guess, like all areas that can involve automation and, you know, quote-unquote, artificial intelligence. And I really emphasize the quotes around that. But, um, yeah, the, the day, every day is not alike. Um my goal for each day, though, is to really learn as much as I can about the needs that stakeholders are coming to me with and uh, also to, to sort of gather as much inspiration from inside the company, outside the company, even from my daily life reflections and turn that stuff into something useful uh, as far as design, screens, flows and, uh, and product thinking. Does the workplace culture differ there in the Netherlands than here in the States? Yeah, it's true. The cult the cultures are extremely different. I mean, I'm from so I was born in in uh, Jersey. I was born in Princeton, where my parents were at school, and uh, spent my childhood in Bergen County. That's basically a, a suburb of New York. And uh, I went to university in New York. Well, I spent a year in Washington D.C. at uh, George Washington University. That didn't really work out for me, so I transferred to NYU. Um, studied music business there. And spent some time doing music industry stuff, but then uh, beginning around 2001, I started to transition into doing work for hire uh, on graphic design level, which led into web development. And yeah, you know, what is that? 20 years later, almost, uh, I'm, I'm in a whole other country doing that kind of work. But most of my professional career has been U.S.-based and Northeast Coast-based. And man, it's very different. I have to tell you, <laughs> the it, it's, it's different in so many ways. I mean, from minuscule and sort of granular things like the way people do lunch out here, which is normally about 15 minute affair uh, that consists of people just, you know, basically focusing on getting food into their stomach and then getting back to work. Uh, so the, on, a, on a subtle level, things are different, but also on more grand levels, uh, things are very different in, in the workplace. One of the major things that I've experienced um, having moved here from New York is that I'm typically the only black person in the whole building. I'm typically the only American in the whole building. Um, and it's really brought a lot of things um, 
to my awareness, particularly like the way people understand what being American is and then what being a black American is. Uh, yeah, I, I had I had very little idea of um, the wide range of understandings that people have about Americans and black Americans. So that stuff is cultural, but it has an impact in, in the workplace because people, when you talk to your colleagues and your coworkers, you know, you have some sort of a cultural understanding of them, whether it's right or not. And that ends up coming out in the way you communicate them the, with them, the words you use or the words you don't use, the, the jokes that you make <laughs> and the jokes you shouldn't be making. So I've had a lot of experiences out here where uh, people just are completely unaware of, of who, who I might be as a black American and the sensitivities I might have or even the, the strengths that I might have. Um, and a lot of those things are often tied to being an American or a black American or an American man or a black man. Or, you know, you pick and choose any of those. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been very different. There are differences around um, expectations of effort as well. Let me, let me put that more clearly. The work day out here is very, uh, very much a nine to five affair. And that's great, actually, <laughs> because from my experience in New York, the workday, actually, the workday never ends. <laughs> and for me, uh, I was a kind of New Yorker where I had, you know, always more than one job. So if I had a, a nine to five gig, uh, I also had, you know, uh, a 10 to, to three gig where and, and usually that was my, my own design work or side projects um or for a long time I was I had my own freelance practice in the city so I was always working but out here there's just not a culture of always working there's more a culture of hardly ever work and I and I don't mean that in a in a diminutive way it's not like people are lazy they just have a different prioritization around these aspects of life so if you have a job cool we work you work from 9 to 5 and that's it if you're trying to stay in the office till 637 people look at you like what are you trying to do <laughs> go home go home eat some dinner hang out with your family or just chill so um that 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 was one big difference as well that i saw immediately well i like that that's a nice change i mean i've certainly worked at places where how late you stayed was was like this badge of honor and you know hopefully you know it meant something to them but that's that's really cool that at the end of the day they want you to get out and go live life it's nice, man. Yes, yes. Well, there's not such a strong capitalist uh, hist history here. Of course, the I would describe the society as capitalist now. So, you know, everyone, uh, they, they buy luxury goods or they buy, you know, there's like discount stores. And, you know, you can spend your money in a capitalist way. But I think they more have a, um, a social connection to uh, socialism and to... Not being caught up in marketing and uh, and having so many options. Like for example, actually, good example. If you go into the average grocery store out here, even ones that are considered like supermarkets, you know, like mega markets, you you'll have like three choices of ketchup. <laughs> you, I know from experience uh, at supermarkets in the states. You know, okay, the bread aisle always bugs me out in the supermarkets. Always bugs me out the bread aisle. When I go into a supermarket in the States to the bread aisle, there's literally, you know, 20, 30 different kinds of bread that I can take home that day. And maybe that's nice sometimes if you're looking for a specific kind of bread. But all of that is sort of reduced here and simplified. And it might be unfortunate that you can't get this special kind of uh, unique bread that you're looking for. But I think most people here are satisfied, like they're genuinely satisfied with a limited choice of bread, for example, or, or a limited choice of um, things to spend their money on. And it feeds into this idea that the point of life is not to constantly be hustling to get your paper so you can go buy one of you know, hundreds of choices of bread. That's not the point of, of living out here. Uh, so that is, I find it very refreshing. You even see it like when you leave the house in New York, you are immediately bombarded with advertisements. They go by on the bus. There's at the bus stop. There's 
There are huge billboards on the side of every building, residential or commercial. You're on the train. You're just surrounded by advertising and messaging. And out here, it's just, it's just not the case. Of course, there's a, occasional posters and marketing pieces, but you know, it's a bit more peaceful. There's a bit more space to, to uh, just breathe and to contemplate your, your average moment, uh, which not surprisingly has had an impact on my design thinking as well. In what way? Well, that, that space has been a luxury. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, I could break it down even on a, on a physiological level because scientists will tell us that the way the brain functions, uh, when you're thinking creatively, for example, your brain is using glucose, right? Uh, just thinking about things requires uh, raw power from your body. So in New York uh, or any, any major city in the States, when you leave the house and you're exposed to all these messages, most people probably, if they're, if they're like anything like me, they probably sort of cocoon themselves and say, okay, I'm just going to, I see it there, but I'm not really engaging with all those ads I see every day. I'm not going to think about every piece of graffiti that I see on the wall. I sort of ignore it. But the thing is, that act of ignoring is actually using your brain's resources because you can't, you can't unsee things. You can only just not pay attention to them. But you're paying, you're not paying attention is actually using energy. It's actually using your mind, your brain, to say, don't focus on this, focus on that. So on a pure physiological level, there are fewer things for me to, uh, to ignore, fewer things for me to try to prevent myself from thinking about. And with those resources, I focus them on interesting design challenges. I focus them on my creative thinking. Um, does that make sense at all? Well, that makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm just curious because I wondered how the culture feeds into the design aesthetic there. Would you say that Amsterdam has a specific design aesthetic in any way? Yeah, I would. I definitely would. Um, so I'm, I'm not super, super good with uh, a lot of like the historical terms related to the history of design. Uh, you know, I know there's like the, the Bauhaus movement, for example, um, that came from uh, the Swiss, I believe. Okay, I don't want to start making things up, but let's say there there is a heritage of European design traditions um, around graphic design, particularly, and you can see that still alive, even if you're just thinking about the stereotypical representations of those design uh, patterns and and uh, the history of those uh, those design elements. Uh, you still see them in the artwork that is visible when you do leave the house. Um, you see it in the care of design that's in the materials that are printed and circulated. How do I make this more concrete? Um, there, there's a palpable and like really uh, um, definite uh, historical design presence out here. And you can see it in the average poster that is at the at the bus station. Um, it's it represents itself in very clean typography, um, and very understated design. So your your average print design is not going to be a lot of like flashy things, um, largely photographic compositions with a with a touch of typography. That's kind of the the flavor that I've been seeing out here for the past three years. And it feels very European. And again, I say that without being uh, an expert in um, European history of design. But when I look at the forms and when I look at the compositions I'm seeing out here in public design, it feels very um, stereotypically European, which, which I think is quite often well done. Um, and uh, yeah, there's also just a sort of confidence around design that you see around every turn out here, whether it's in, in the architecture, which is very uh, bold and, and um, very confident. I don't know how to describe it in any, any other way. You know, you might see a building, like they have a famous building here in Amsterdam called the Eye. It's a museum, and it, uh, it sits on a, on a big river out here. And it is just the most futuristic thing you have ever seen. Um, now, if you see that kind of building in some other cities, that building feels ostentatious, it feels uh, showy, it looks like some architect was like, hey world, look at me. But out here, that building 
seems very um very in place <laughs> even though it's not surrounded by other futuristic buildings it just looks very confident you know no one's walking around saying oh why would they put such a a strangely shaped building there it's almost like people want that people want an interesting use of design and art in in the world around them in their environment and uh, and they make space for it and you see it all over from small scale to big scale are there any kind of particular challenges that you faced as a black designer in Amsterdam? Man, well, there. So the thing is about being black out here uh, is complex, though. Uh, I'm I'm a black American out here, so I benefit from the privilege of being American, which is definitely a real thing. Um, but I don't benefit from having skin that is brown. And black Americans and black people in general are not, I wouldn't say they are the, the, uh, the minority uh, that is the most hated out here or, or the most persecuted. There are two sets of folks out here that really bear the brunt of this Central European racism and animosity. And that's the, uh, the Moroccans and the Turkish people and anyone who looks like they're practicing a Muslim faith, you know, based on the way they're dressed. So I, as a black American, I, I'm not experiencing the same sort of um, challenges on a, on a social or racial level that I have experienced in the States. But there's a sort of um, non-acknowledgement that happens out here. And one, one, one example that, that I always find easy to say is if I'm in a store, well, first of all, Dutch people are really tall. <laughs> That's not a generalization. I mean, it is a generalization, but it's based on facts. Like Dutch people, I think, are are uh, literally the tallest people on earth. And um, and I'm not a tall dude. I'm I'm barely six feet. And there will be times when I'm in a store or whatever at a counter, maybe trying to get a coffee or something, and somebody will just like step on me or or just kind of move into my space and move me out of the way. And I'll be like, hey, you didn't see me here, you tall person. And they'll look at me and they'll be like, oh, oh, actually, I didn't even notice you there. And they're not saying that to be smart, alecky or nothing like that. I, I think they're being honest. They literally do not see me, even though I'm there. And it's, it's this sort of um, uh, a lack of acknowledgement that, it, it, you know, maybe the, the anonymity might feel nice sometimes if you're looking to, to sort of just be in your own space. But most of the time when we're out here with mixing it up with other people in society, we need them to acknowledge us, to, to look at us, you know, all the way from like saying, oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm nodding my head and saying hello to you today. It'd be nice if you acknowledge that. But also down to the sort of, yeah, I'm online too, and you just stepped on me because you didn't even see I was there. And so both of those kinds of extremes are, end up feeling like people aren't acknowledging my humanity. I'm invisible to them. Uh, I'm less than significant to them. So that's a kind of difficult thing. And people just don't understand what it is, to, what black Americanness is. I mean, they have this, in Europe in general, I would say, uh, there is this, this misunderstanding of black American culture that's only based on popular media. So for a lot of people, the only understandings they have about what blackness is comes from music and videos and you know, old movies. So that makes it difficult to <laughs> to deal with uh, people's you know, embarrassing questions or offensive questions. They often don't know they're being offensive, but you know, when they when they when they have just this uh, stereotypical understanding of you, uh, yeah, it ends up being a little bit challenging. For work, I just power through those things. I try to be an educator, actually, not only about design concepts that that I believe are powerful but also about black culture uh, whenever I can I try to put people on to what it means to be black um, and to expose them to all of our levels of power and, and amazingness do you have a personal philosophy as a designer do I have a personal philosophy I guess I do um, but I, I don't know it's pretty that's a pretty broad question philosophy around work around design work um, yeah, we'll, we'll say that <laughs> when you're approaching a new project or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I might have a, a methodology more than a philosophy. 
Um, but maybe it is a, kind of a philosophical methodology. <laughs> but the, the thing is, um, yeah, I, I need to know. And I guess this is part of uh, my, my penchant for systems, part of my, my interest in being able to design systems. I need to know all of the moving parts. Um, I need to know what people don't know. You know, for example, okay, I was uh, with some colleagues at work. I was basically interviewing some some uh, some of my colleagues. This was uh, early on in my job, and I was sitting with um, a junior designer, and we were talking to uh, some colleagues, trying to gather some information about their experiences using this tool. And I knew some of the answers um, to questions I was posing. Uh, but I don't think my, my colleague, my design colleague, realized that I was sort of just trying to collect all the information. So I asked, some, I asked the interviewee a question, and my, my design colleague stepped in and was like, oh, the answer is blah, 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 blah. And I was like, but <laughs> I know that, of course, but I'm trying to gather their perspective. I'm trying to understand what people don't understand. And it's sort of representative of the way that I approach a design challenge is first just to collect as much information as I can. Not only the obvious stuff, the documented stuff, but in people's telling me, in people telling me uh, about what they know, they're also telling me what they don't know. And uh, this is kind of my, the starting point that I prefer uh, for a design approach. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a collection, there's synthesis. Uh, there's experimentation, there's correction, and uh, and that's kind of my my methodology. What are you excited about at the moment? Mm. Uh, that's, that's a good question. I'm afraid to to not have an answer because then it makes it sound like I'm not excited about anything. But to be honest, I really I really like the way that. Uh, design systems so let's think like living style guides and uh things like um sales forces lightning and and all the even bootstrap to a degree right just an idea that you can have this uh this dynamic resource that establishes uh, a design vision as well as design assets as well as uh um yeah a, a workflow for how you collaborate with uh, teammates the seriousness with which the industry is taking that approach is really exciting to me because uh, for a long time, especially when I was doing web development uh, on my own uh, with my freelance practice, this was um, an area that always caused trouble for me. And even as I've been working in-house with different organizations, the, the ability to have a system that everyone can refer to and even that everyone can contribute to, whether or not they're designers, this is sort of like the, this is, I don't know, this is gold for me. Um, I don't think a lot of people believe that non-designers should have a role in the design of product, um, but I don't agree. And it's hard just to convince people of that in, in, in words, but if you have a tool and a, and a system set up where people can actually uh, contribute and learn and, uh, and become design thinkers and, and even design collaborators, that's gold. And uh, I think that's becoming more and more accepted and there's more and more tooling around that and there's more and more practices and, uh, and different people speaking about how they're actually making that happen within their organizations. Uh, so that's pretty exciting to me. And you know what else is exciting? I got to be honest, man. The, 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 right now, I feel like it's a golden age of black media. And it might be long overdue. Let, let's say that. It's definitely long overdue. Um, I think for a long time, we, we've always been, like, fighting to create space in which our media can survive inside, like, the non-black uh, media landscape. But right now, I'm just looking at, like, all Ava, Ava DuVernay stuff and Black Panther and everything happening on Netflix. I'm just like, this is fantastic. And it feels unprecedented, and it's really exciting. And it extends to music, Solange and Beyonce, and man, everybody. Uh, yeah, Frank and Kendrick. I mean, just cats coming with just such great black-created media and content, um, and it's it's fantastic. I feel like I don't have enough time actually 
even if I just focused on <laughs> watching and listening to great stuff coming out of um, black creatives, I just don't have a, enough time, not enough time and space to, to even take all of it in. And that is a fantastic uh, abundance. What skills would you say a designer needs in 2016? It could be soft skills, hard skills. Uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this um, mentoring course with uh, this thing called Design Lab. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Okay, the URL is, is trydesignlab.com. I'm not even sure how I became aware of it, but it's basically um, remote mentoring, to put it simply. And, um, and I recently enrolled as a mentor in this program. It started back in September for me. And I've had a chance to, to mentor two, uh, two people who are trying to increase their knowledge about UX design and design in general. And uh, the thing that has struck me, which I think uh, maybe speaks to your question, is what they've, they've both asked me, you know, what, what, do we, what do we have to do? Like, how do we have to uh, get ready to start working and be a UX designer or to be a graphic designer? And um, yeah, it, it's been a great opportunity for me to think about this question. And I think the answer is flexibility. It's not a very satisfying answer, but to me, the truth is that the role, the job of a quote-unquote designer is slowly fading away. Not in an entirely negative sense, but this idea that we have these, um, you know, that we exist in these silos of uh, magical creative thinking that no one can access, this myth is being eroded, and it's being eroded by the reality, like, especially in a, in a commercial context, design is a product of, uh, typically a product of, you know, very specific processes and inputs, and you have to take into account different restraints and all of that put together produces something that can be used in a commercial sense. And it's not magic. You, of course, you need inspiration. Uh, of course, you need uh, knowledge and uh, discipline, and you need uh, some structure. But those things are, are, are very accessible. Um, hey, you could even sign up and get mentored by someone who knows all about it. So to me, what designers need right now in order to, uh, in order to maintain a position, in order to keep on doing work that they love, which is creative thinking, and getting their hands on stuff to try and make things is what you need is flexibility. Flexibility to be able to understand what, what the actual problem with a product or a website or a, a project, understand what that, that need is, and then be able to translate your skills into a solution for that, uh, for that need. So I don't know, my answer might've been different 10 years ago where I might've said, Oh yeah, you need to know color theory and, uh, It'd be good to know a little bit of HTML, but, you know, these things are slowly becoming uh, productized themselves. Like, I, I haven't had to create a color palette by myself in the longest time. There's so many tools for that. I haven't had to build a website from scratch in the longest time. There's so many frameworks. There's so many, uh, there's so many solutions for those things that used to be securely in the realm of a designer. Um, so I think that the, the skill set moving forward is about flexibility and it's about genuine interest. You have to really be interested in this stuff because you're going to have to be reading all the time. You got to follow the right people. You got to listen. Man, I have a podcast problem. I mean, <laughs> I wish there was some sort of therapy that could help me reduce my podcast. But the thing is, I'm always passively learning. So to me, that's, that's like the, the skill set uh, that's needed. For someone who's coming into the design world now, realize that this this vaulted position of designer is slowly changing into uh, something more functional and practical. And yeah, to to continue to excel, you're gonna need true interest and flexibility. So you left the U.S. to move to the Netherlands about four years ago. Uh, what initially spurred that move? It sounds like you were doing pretty good here, career-wise. I, w I was doing really well in New York, man. I was working for the uh, Center for Constitutional Rights, which is a human rights um, nonprofit. They, fo they focus on a lot of things, a lot of issues that really resonate with me, like ending stop and frisk, like freeing the brothers in Guantanamo Bay who were there for no reason. They focus on all kinds of really righteous things. And I was the uh, media, what was, what was my title? The multimedia manager. So basically I was... For all of their digital and design needs, I was the person. 
and um, it was it was a really great a lot of a lot of responsibility, a little bit too much work, but um, you know I felt <laughs> I felt like it was meaningful work, so I I, I put it put in the effort. Uh, but the thing is, you know, I, well, I have a son; he's five. So when he was born, when he when he started to you know stand up and move around, my partner and I we were like. I don't know. So we were both doing community work as well. And uh, in Brooklyn, that meant dealing with police brutality. That meant dealing with gentrification. And these kinds of issues really make you think about history. They make you think historically. Has it always been this way? Yes, it's always been this way. Have have my people always been dealing with this? Yes, we've always been dealing with this. Is this ever going to change? Now that's the question. Is this ever going to change? Of course, you want to be an agent of that change, but for me, when I started to build a family, I started to think, well, what can I use some strategy here? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right strategy? I could stay in New York and fight to my last day, but is that the right strategy? I looked at the history of my own family, which, you know, my mom and my sister, they did some amazing genealogy work a few years ago, and they were able to trace the names of our family members back to the late 1700s. We had names on everybody back to the late 1700s. And it was really powerful. My mom wrote a, a whole book about it, even. And uh, the the thing that impacted me as I began to to form my own small family is that not a lot has changed. I mean, of course, some things, but since the late 1700s, not a whole lot has changed for my family. Um, we are, you know, we are okay, definitely better off. Uh, but not many of us um, have many assets. We don't have a strong foundation. We're all struggling with the same kind of challenges. And we just started thinking, my wife and I, we just started thinking maybe, you know, a fundamental change, a fundamental shift in the trajectory of our families can be as a result of something we do. And if being in the United States has been the, the a real challenge for our family for hundreds of years, Maybe not being in the United States would be a solution in some kind of way. So it's been an experiment. We thought, hey, we, we, we have the, the, the privilege and the, the mobility to move out of the country and see what that's like. And that's sort of the, the question that drove us to, to look outside of the U.S. for some work. And um, yeah, it's still an experiment, man. I'm not, I'm not convinced. <laughs> that I made the right move. I'm really not. And it's really hard being away from family. It's really expensive to travel back. When we when we do travel, it's like you got a little bit of time to see everybody and it's just really hard to to reconnect with folks. You know, folks pass away and you're out here like, oh man. Um, so it's really it's been a real challenge. It's been a challenge to to even my my partnership uh, with my wife, but all of these things make us double down on what we know to be true and, and, and the powers that we do have. And we focus now on, um, on, on a futuristic vision that includes everybody. So even though we left the States to try and do something different, the ultimate vision is, is somehow to be with everybody. I don't, I don't think everybody in the fam is going to be like, yeah, let's leave the U S cause that's hard work anyway. Um, but you know, I don't have an answer. We're, we're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to figure it out, but in the meantime, I've been able to to be in a in an environment where I didn't expect. So I'm learning a lot. I'm being challenged a lot. I'm growing a lot. I'm making business connections outside of the U.S. I'm, I'm making friends outside of the U.S. I'm extending my community outside of the U.S. So although it's an experiment, I think we can definitely say at this point there's been some success as far as being able to extend myself, being able to continue to grow uh, and not feel like I'm going to step out of the house and get shot by police um, every day and not, you know, not worry that my kid, uh, there's only one educational institute for him and, and it costs 20000 a year and he's only four. Like this is not, <laughs> it's not the kind of life that I can even um, support. So we, we chose for an alternative uh, and it's an experiment and it's still playing out. But um, I think it was a true indication of the, the privilege that not only my profession, but my education and, uh, and even the, the setup from my, my parents and my previous generations have, uh, have provided for me.
Well, you know, we've all heard that story about the black creative that leaves the U.S. and moves to Europe for creative freedom. And like you said, you know, we've got a lot of issues here with systemic racism, police brutality, etc. And of course, you've got folks like Nina Simone, uh, James Baldwin, Miles Davis, etc., where, you know, I, I don't know how much peace they found in making that move from the U.S. to Europe, but hopefully they found, you know, yeah. some bit of peace. How has it been for you? Have you found some level of peace and creativity since moving there? There was definitely um, the, the, the contrast, right? The difference in life in the U.S. versus life out here. Uh, the, the immediate contrast made me feel relieved because I didn't have the same problems that I had. Um, and I could see how anyone coming uh, out of the U.S. and living in somewhere like Europe you know, Amsterdam, Paris, or what have you, London even, maybe, they'd be like, oh, life is life is better out here. Oh, you know, cops are not trying to kill me every day. Of course, that's not always true, depending on where you are outside of the U.S., but let's just say that's sort of a, a feeling people have. It's understandable because what happens is that you, you leave this environment that you're completely familiar with. You know all of its machinations. You know how it, it operates on a subtle level and also on the obvious overt levels. And you come to a place where... You don't understand those things. So you're really dealing with like surface elements of the society and of your environment. And in that sense, you might imagine it's easy to either not see or to ignore or to pretend that the same problems don't exist in this new place. So me being out here for four years, um, it like we were talking about, there's been a relief in terms of the differences in physical environment and, and sort of the stimuli but um, people still, I'm still an immigrant. I'm still a foreigner, an alien out here. And so it's not, uh, it's not always that welcoming. And I also have the challenge of language out here as a, as a non-Dutch uh, speaker. It's very challenging to, to deal with the bureaucracy of life out here. Um, so that's been a real challenge. And it's impacted my creativity, actually. While I do have a bit more of like sensory freedom, more time to think about life which inspires my design, uh, I also have the challenge of fitting my lived experience into the, the design artifacts that people want and expect out here. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. You, you kind of have to adapt. I kind of have to adapt. But the thing is, I want to... I also want to be faithful to my style as a designer. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a commercial artist. I don't I don't have any um, any misgivings or like it's not a, it's, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm the the next Picasso, right? I'm out here trying to execute business projects for for individuals. Um, I thought I'd I thought I'd be able to do a bit more nonprofit kind of work out here, which is where I'm coming from in New York. But there is a different. Um, the nonprofit industry out here is much, much smaller. Uh, and the opportunities for doing meaningful work on those levels, I haven't found them easily. So most of my work out here has been, you know, straight up commercial or corporate work, even enterprise level stuff. So for me to feel like I'm honoring myself and my own creative visions, I still need to be Kaid when I'm doing work, when I'm doing enterprise design. Of course, I'm being responsible and I'm trying to achieve goals as well, but I still have, have to be me and, and my style comes out in my work. So there is this sort of um, uh, this friction or conflict that I sometimes encounter when I'm just trying to design in my style, which is American, which is black, which is male. And, you know, it's, it's not what's expected. It's not what is uh, often it's not what fits. So there's that kind of creative challenge. Um, but you know, at the same time, people, let's say I'm taking advantage of the stereotype of cool blackness, because I think most Europeans I've met, uh, have an appreciation for black culture, even as far as they understand it, even if, for example, their understanding is limited to, um, pop culture and I'm not judging. I, I understand the machinations of like media and business and how information crosses the Atlantic. I get that. So I'm not judging people for having a limited understanding of blackness. Um, but even when they do have a limited understanding, it's typically 
very appreciative. They're like, <laughs> you know, they they uh, they feel blackness. Like they they recognize that it's dope. So even when there's a difference in what I'm trying to produce or how I'm trying to express myself, um, it's typically welcomed as uh, something cool. I mean, that's that's sort of a a broad generalization. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy that space that it gives me. So is it more of a black cool kind of thing or more of an American cool kind of thing? I don't know. Maybe both. It, yeah, it, it depends on who and when and, and what we're talking about. I got you. I got you. How did you first get interested in design? I know you got your start in the music industry. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the design was always there. It was always in the background. And, and I, I was fortunate to go to a really excellent um, high school uh, called Dwight Englewood. And uh, they had a lot of attention to... Um, actually, you know what? I don't know if this was abnormal because back in the day, a, a healthy arts uh, education was part of every child's education. Um, and I think my school just held on to that uh, a bit longer than most schools. So... I was in, you know, fifth and sixth, or I guess seventh grade, uh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, learning about uh, pointillism and uh, composition and, you know, the painting with watercolors and uh, just being taught some of the fundamentals around fine arts. And that really sparked uh, my, my visual creative uh, center. Because up to that, I'd always been actually a, a, a writer. Like, I'd always been writing. And people always encouraged me to write. And I really thought I was going to be some sort of a, a, a professional with writing. And that was part of the core of their work. But when I got to do vis, visual design, um, yeah, that just sort of took over my, my free time. So I was always drawing, always doodling. But I always also had a penchant for science and for taking things apart, for tinkering. I even at one point, in my first year undergrad, I thought I would be uh, endeavoring to be a biomedical engineer. So I started on that track until I got um, I got put into some math courses and I said, okay, this is not going to work. <laughs> but uh, I still uh, wanted to focus on um, yeah, being a creative person. So... Yeah, so design-wise, it was kind of in the background for a long time. Um, after I knew I wasn't going to be a biomedical engineer, I focused on music because I'd always always also been a music head. I've been a DJ since I was 13. Um, and yeah, my, both my parents and my sister were music heads. Uh, so music was like always there. And uh, my mom, I think at one point said, okay, you, you want to do music? Well, how are you going to pay the rent? And I was like, oh, good question, good question. So at NYU, I found this program that married uh, the business side of, of, the, of the school's offerings. So NYU has a pretty decent business school called Tisch. So they have a, a program there called uh, Music Business where you get some Tisch business courses like management, finance, uh, marketing. And then they have uh, the music side, so music theory, music uh, performance, uh, music history, sight singing, all these kinds of things. And then they had a component that was about actually doing the business of music. So marketing for artists and this kind of stuff. So I studied that at NYU, graduated, worked in the industry with all kinds of major labels. Um, I was doing online marketing. I was doing A&R work. I, did, I managed a recording studio for a while. Uh, what else was I doing? All kinds of stuff. Working on the distribution end. I had a production company with a buddy of mine, Aaron. We were doing distribution in, in New York. We recorded uh, uh, a jazz uh, group and tried to put out their album. Uh, I guess things were going kind of smooth until two things happened. Number one, I started to realize that as I as I gained more and more responsibility, as I as my like positions got better and better, I was dealing with more and more, let's put it bluntly, criminals. And it was difficult for me. Um, not only am I just, I'm not a criminal-minded individual, but uh, I don't feel, I don't want to be <laughs> pressured by people who are, who are, you know, want me to collude and stuff. So I found it difficult to work in the industry. And then also September 2001 happened and the market and the industry in New York, everything just stopped. 
everything just went down and that included music um so i lost my job right in that same month and um i said okay you know <laughs> now what <laughs> Um, but I had the whole time been doing a bit of visual design for my own mixtapes and also for little projects that people would see, uh, would come to me and say, oh, I see you do design. Can you make me a poster, make me an event flyer, blah, blah, blah. So I would do that kind of stuff. I even remember um, one really uh, powerful moment in New York. I was walking down the street one day and I saw one of my flyers on the ground, like in a puddle. <laughs> and I said, I've made it. I've made it. Because at the time, uh, and this may even still be the case, I don't know, but people would like distribute flyers directly to the ground. <laughs> that was sort of a legitimate way of marketing. Uh, you, you know, if you're in front of a club, just look down and you see all kinds of flyers on the ground. But um, yeah, so I, I was doing small design projects. And when my, my main you know work in the music industry faded out, um, people were, yeah, people would step up and be like, oh, okay, I see you do this, do that. Can you build me a small website? Yes, I can. Uh, can you design me a flyer? Uh, yes. Poster? Yes. Cool. I do all that stuff. And, um, you know, I just started taking that work very seriously because it was a, a stream of income and I wanted to maximize it. So I started studying more and more about um, graphic design concepts, uh, how to produce things. I started pirating design software like a lot of people. And um, yeah, just trying to trying to make production level stuff, uh, not only as far as my print design, but also uh, in terms of web design. So I really started to dive into front end uh, development. Um, and yeah, just doing more and more of that work. I uh, had my freelance practice. A lot of people from my community and from my family put me on, found me clients, and I just try to, to go all out and deliver 100%. Um, and that led to bigger entities and organizations and companies noticing my work and inviting me in. So that's ultimately how I got to the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, doing you know major level stuff for them. Uh, but yeah, you know, to, to put it generally, it was like when music industry failed me, I, I needed something to fall back on. I had been doing graphic design and visual design as a, a hobby in a way. And when I saw that it could actually earn me money, I put all of my effort and all of my intellect into it to try and teach myself how to be a professional grade uh, artist in that realm. And, uh, and I haven't stopped learning. I'm still learning to this day. And that's, I think it's part of, my, part of the, the, the recipe for my success, whatever that may be at the moment. Two things that you mentioned to me earlier that impact your day-to-day -day are perception and perspective. Can you speak a bit more on that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, been, um, it's been a really big theme for, for me lately. Um, obviously, being, being out here in a place where uh, I'm judged by my externalness, um, you know, if I'm People don't know a lot of, there are not a lot of black Americans out here in, in the Netherlands uh, and in Amsterdam. So I'm always uh, sort of not a victim, but I'm always, um, the way I interact with people is, is, is largely impacted by their perception of who they think I am. And that's probably not too abnormal in the, in the rest of the world either. But out here... Um, I feel I feel like a different person because in the States, as an American, um, I've always felt like America belongs to me. And I've always recognized that there were, let's quote-unquote, immigrants, people who uh, Americans say are not originally from America. And I've always had empathy and compassion and, and have felt solidarity with with these people who, who folks will call immigrants. But I also have always found it easy to have that because I had always felt like I belonged. And coming out here, being an immigrant has really affected my perception of what it means to belong somewhere, to be from somewhere. And it really has changed my, my understanding of, of even those people who are known as immigrants in the U.S., 
And this perceptual shift has been very dramatic for me. And even I would, I would recommend to people, um, if there's any way to dramatically shift your perception, especially as a designer, it's going to feed your creativity. It's going to extend your awareness about uh, all the things that make up life, obviously. And then that actually extends the catalog of inspiration that's available to you. As a designer, I'm, you know, when I have tough times as far as coming up with solutions, it often feels like it's a lack of inspiration. And to be honest, out here, I have not had one moment where I've been like, huh, just got no ideas. <laughs> because there, there's so much that I'm contending with on a personal level, and then also just like perceiving my environment, um, that just gives me so much fodder for creativity, so much... Um, so so much like structural awareness that feeds into the way I analyze design challenges. Um, you know, like I was saying, I'm sort of a systems thinker, uh, and I approach design from, from that perspective. Let me understand the system of this design challenge. And being out here where I'm an immigrant in a foreign system, it makes me hyper-aware. It really, like, turns my, my, uh, my perception engines on to full, because it's it's kind of like survival. Like if I don't understand every aspect, every detail of what's around me, I'm gonna get into trouble. I'm gonna have some hard times. So it's really made me sort of push out my my uh, sense of awareness, and that in turn has has given new colors to the world around me. And and it's exclusively because I'm in a different place. So the that idea of perception and awareness. Um, tied to locality is has been really powerful for me and I think I've, I've experienced it a little bit as I traveled before just on little holidays and stuff little vacations here and there uh, before moving out here but the 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 powerful thing to me now is sort of the immersion you know when you when you know you're in a, in a new place and you're going to be there for a minute your thinking changes and that change in thinking can have an impact on your design work as well at least that's as far as I've experienced it do you see yourself staying in the Netherlands long term? Ooh, that is the fifty million dollar question. I have no idea. Um, man, when I when I watch the news about what's happening in the states, uh, you might imagine that I'm not in a rush to get back. But yeah, yeah. But then it's like, look, man, all my people are still there, and and I I don't feel good thinking about family and friends who are who are still not only struggling but then family and friends that I don't get to see often so it's a real challenge but then I look at my son he's five he's speaking Dutch fluently he's got Dutch friends he's got friends from the UK this kid is is living a life you know he, he goes to school like it's very safe out here for kids uh man it's there are so many reasons to stay and so many reasons not to stay um so is, is a tough question. I don't have an answer for it now. Um, you know, when my partner and I talk about it, we're just like, well, let's just, you know, keep moving forward <laughs> until a very compelling something happens. And then we can, uh, we can make some decisions around that. But it's a good question, and I don't have a solid answer for it. What's the best advice you've been given about design? Hmm. Best advice I've been given about design... That's a hard one. I think I I have a uh, I have this this experts problem. I'm gonna call it an experts problem. Where and, and I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I am. I'll, I'll say I'm an expert. Forget that. Let me take that. I'm an expert, and I know that there's this thing where an an expert has a hard time sort of deconstructing um, why they're an expert or wh what it takes to become an expert, and I fall squarely into that to the degree where I, I kind of have a hard time being able to say that I've gotten some piece of design advice that has been really fundamental to me. Um, I think another thing that, that makes it hard for me to say what that one thing might be is that I'm really constantly aggressively learning. And um, it might be that new information that I get that confirms original pieces of advice or like original foundational information. The new information just sort of smooshes that stuff down and you know makes it part of just wh what I understand about the world and, and about design in general so as a broad understanding and not necessarily p 
piece by piece. Um, so it's really hard for me to answer that question. Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? Yeah. So what I'm doing right now, when I look up uh, at the work I've been doing, is um, I find myself working in in very diverse environments, diverse in terms of the kind of product being made. Um, and I like that. Uh, I want to continue this sort of tour of different environments, different product types that can use my kind of thinking. Um, so for the next five years, I see myself being on projects, big and small, where I'm bringing my expertise in terms of designing and improvement and bringing systems uh, and workflows into the processes for making digital products. And at the same time, obviously learning and picking up new things in each of those experiences. Maybe it will culminate in a book. Maybe it will culminate in my own consultancy or another business that I'm running on my own. Uh, but I'm really, I feel like I'm a, 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 like a free agent. Is that what it is in the NBA? When you, you don't really, you're not like a lifer on some team, but you do a couple years here, a couple years there, uh, and you're staying in peak physical, and you know, you're an asset to whatever team you're on, but you don't necessarily have uh, allegiance to one city or another. I feel like that's kind of the space that I'm in with my work, and, uh, and I like it. And I think it will culminate into something powerful, uh, but I still feel like I'm, I'm absorbing. I'm absorbing, I'm getting more experiences, um, learning about different business goals and different business structures and the challenges they have contributing to not only their product thinking, but also their, their cultural thinking. Um, yeah, and I, just, I think I will continue doing that for some time. Where will be? I don't know. Maybe Canada next? I don't know. <laughs> well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find more about you and about your work online? Well, my website, uh, kaijacobs.com. Oh, I have an even easier URL. It's called doingmybest.work. Uh, but that that goes directly to my uh, my personal site, kaijacobs.com. Kaid, that's a hard one to spell, but it's actually well, it's, a, it's harder to say than it is to spell. It's, it's spelled very simply, Q A I D. That's also my um, my username on Instagram and on Twitter. That's my username, except there's a J at the end, so Q A I D J on Twitter. And uh, yeah, those are the places. I'm not. I'm not super active. You know, every now and then I'll try and drop a little thing. I feel like if it's a gem, or if I find something that really moves me, I'll try and uh, start a conversation around it. But um, yeah, those are the places where people can, if they're interested, interact. Well, Kai Jacobs, thank you again so much for coming on the show. There's so much that you had to share about being a designer, about your life in the states, about how life is over there in the Netherlands. And, you know, it, it seems to me that, that you're someone that does a lot of thinking about how you can improve the world around you with your skills and strengths and values and just kind of spread them as far and wide as you can. So, man, you had so much good stuff to share. Again, thank you so much. Man, listen, Maurice, thank you, because the, <laughs> the only reason I have anything to say is because of cats like you who are who are fearless and mm -hmm. putting out your own products, putting out your own thoughts. And, uh, and sharing, you know, your sharing inspires me. And the fact that you're putting out something that has high quality and high value makes me turn to myself and say, okay, now what am I doing? <laughs> so, man, you know, thank you for, for reaching out and making some time to, to kick it with me. It's been really um, an honor. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kaid and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kaid and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 12 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. 
Just search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two and it really, really helps to show out by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for Design Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.